unlike DC Comics, we here at the Byword actually appreciate artists. So today, in this week's episode of the Nerd Byword, we're talking about some of our all-time favorite artists. Stick around. Ladies and gentle people, welcome back to a new episode of the Nerd by Word podcast, episode 94. And this week, we're going to talk about art as Chris and I discuss some of our all-time favorite artists. But before we dive into the art of it all, it is time, as always, for some... Nerd news. All right, Chris, what's new? So usually, Dave, I come in prepared with, uh, you know, all typed up what I'm going to say with my news article, and it's very professional and very expert. But this week, there's not a lot of details to go on. So we're just going to riff on this uh, in the spirit of one of our favorite shows, Riff Tracks. Um, There's a Daredevil reboot series officially in the works, uh, according to... Uh, production weekly which provides listings of shows that are in pre or currently in production for film professionals there's something listed simply as daredevil reboot the only other nuggets of information is that kevin feige uh, marvel studios overlord supreme and chris gary who worked on marvel's behind the mask are mentioned as producers so that's all we have to go on i think we can assume that it's going to be charlie cox reprising um since you know we have a previous news story saying that he's going to be heavily involved a lot of people are speculating he's going to be in the echo series due to the connection to the kingpin so there's not a lot of meat on the bone here but i'm gonna gobble it up nonetheless yeah i I think i might get choked on this piece of meat (laughs) um i'm gonna be completely honest i i'm i'm kind of becoming a little tired of um the MCU's approach to to continuity, uh, particularly the idea that you know consistently anything that Paul, uh, that uh, Kevin Feige did not um, directly oversee is somehow not official MCU canon or is like MCU adjacent at best. Um, you know, famously uh, for a hot second there, the television uh, arm of. Uh, Marvel Studios was sort of run separately um, and and Feige didn't have direct control over that. And it's so interesting that anything that Feige does not have direct control over is so suddenly like not official MCU canon. I'm looking at you, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which was uh, a halfway decent show, actually. But because of this, this separation, we never got, you know, the big screen payoff of maybe some of the Avengers actually figuring out that Coulson was still alive or had been revived, which I think would have been, you know, a big, interesting emotional payoff. And now we're sitting on these Netflix shows. And once again, we're not talking about, you know, Daredevil season four, we're talking about a soft reboot. What the hell does that even mean? A soft (laughs) reboot? Either you're rebooting it or you're not. If the only thing coming back for this Daredevil show is Charlie Cox, then A, you did the right thing by bringing Charlie Cox back. But B, you're also jettisoning three seasons of a fantastic series and you're going to confuse the the general public to no uh, end because they're going to be expecting this to be some kind of continuation. And then you're going to what? You're going to start riffing on it? Like how? You know, what is so... Uh, horrible or objectionable in those uh, three seasons of Daredevil that you refuse to reference it. Like, I, I I, don't quite understand it. Like, you like, you know, that version of Kingpin and you like that version of Daredevil, but what, you're going to recast Karen Page? Like, w- where does that make sense? You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of taking something that has been so 
wildly successful and overall well-liked by fans, and then saying, yeah, but because Feige didn't oversee the original run, we're just going to do a soft reboot so we don't have to be beholden to that. Well, this, it's, you're going to be okay to be beholden to that. Comic book writers have to do this constantly. You know, uh, writers change, artists change, the approach to a character changes, and, you know, people weave their, their new stories while still working off of the same foundation. You know, get over yourself, man. Yeah, I, yeah, that that is a good point. Um, as far as like canon, I'm not really concerned with that. I, a, a lot of the speculation I've seen was like it it isn't really have particularly with the Netflix era series. Like it doesn't really have like a lasting impact. They kind of they they aren't as reliant, I think, on being in universe as something like Agents of Shield which had its ups and downs, like some really, really downs the first season, especially. Um, so that's not something I'm super concerned with. Um, if you can get the whole band back together and some of the same, uh, some of the same like creators behind it, then I'm, I'm down. Um, but yeah, it, it really is kind of weird amalgamation and maybe too much of a good thing when it comes to Feige. We got essentially something like a, a Frank Miller Daredevil or, you know, a, a Chip Zdarsky Daredevil with the Netflix show, you know, kind of kind of a darker run on the character. Now, is the reason that we're getting a soft reboot because, you know, Disney wants to Disneyfy Daredevil? In other words, are we getting more of a, a Mark Wade Daredevil, the Daredevil that smiles a lot and is, you know operating more in the light you know that that's a valid interpretation of the character but it's a significant break from what came before and and if you're going to do that then you you know you better you know cross your t's and dot your i's to make something like this work and i still don't see a particular reason for the internal logic of of those first three seasons of daredevil and how it how it's going to connect to whatever this new show is going to be you know, if you're going to bring in Kingpin, for example, for him to interact with again, are we not going to reference their previous interactions? It just seems like a very, very strange approach. I don't know why they can't just come out and say, okay, we're doing Daredevil Season 4 because this show is so beloved. It would not be a problem. Nobody would bat an eye. The soft reboot thing, however, I just feel very awkward about. I, don't, I, I just think, honestly, just like sitting back, I really just don't think they want to give too much credence to Netflix. And I think it, they want it to be their own thing. Um, as far as like really changing kind of the mood of everything, I don't know that that's exactly the route that they're going to take with, you know, now including those Netflix shows on Disney Plus. And there's like a whole new thing. I had to like, my kids were trying to watch Turning Red last night and I had to like make sure that they had like, parental controls of you know on their accounts and everything so there's like a whole retooling with the disney plus interface with content uh warnings and stuff like that plus you have something like moon knight which kind of seems kind of in the same maybe not to the same degree as a daredevil netflix but but at least uh on the same path so i i don't know that they're going to retool the entire vision of the character but i i am i'm hoping that they they keep like the same relationship between daredevil and kingpin like you specifically referenced because that would be that would be goofy you know the other thing too is um and i and i find this interesting that you know daredevil season three left at a such such an interesting point as it was building basically towards bullseye you know um and i'm sure that 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 is a toy that the mcu wants to play with because we haven't had a proper you know um, Daredevil bullseye kind of you know, rivalry moment in, in the previous show. But, you know, th there is an actor sitting there that has, you know, been working on that character. Are we going to recast that, you know? Um, from what we've heard, it, neither, you know, the, the actress for Foggy Nelson or Karen Page have been uh, approached about coming back. So um, are they really getting the band back together? I mean, I'm, I applaud the fact that they're bringing Charlie Cox back, obviously, uh, the dude is Matt Murdock. Like it's just such great casting. Um, but I, there's a lot of other stuff uh, on the periphery of that show that made it so good, and and I'm I'm not convinced yet that yeah. coming in with terminology like a soft reboot that this is going to be um, more of the Daredevil that I'm looking for. I'm really hoping that they'll recapture it, but I'm not convinced yet. I, I'm definitely going to have to hear and, and read and, and maybe see some more before I form an opinion there. 
All right, Dave, usually I'm the bearer of bad news, but you're taking on that role this week. Hey, 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 you know, stop me if you've heard this one before, but there is a video game studio accused of being an oppressive and sexist and uh, toxic workplace. I I don't know how often we have uh, discussed uh, that at this point, uh, but this time it it really comes kind of out of uh, out of nowhere uh, because of the wholesome nature of the games that the studio makes. So we're talking about Moon Studios, uh, which famously uh, makes the Ori games published by Microsoft, Ori and the Blind Forest from 2015, and then Ori and the Will of the Wisps in 2020. And so apparently there are some serious problems, particularly with uh, the two fellas who have uh, started and are currently running the studio, uh, Thomas Mahler and uh, Gennady Korol. Apparently, they um, like to have what they call a no BS policy in their workplace, which has given them sort of um, the permission to say whatever they want to. Um, What's really interesting in this particular situation is that much of the workforce of the studio is actually like uh, remote. Uh, Many of them are kind of like all over the world, really. Uh, But they have sort of this ongoing, um, I guess, company group chat or something. And that's how they do a lot of communication with each other. Uh, There's been some uh, screen caps of... uh, Coral, for example, saying nobody cares what you think. Uh, Mala re- for referring to somebody as retarded. Um, and, and then uh, they're currently working on a game um, codenamed Forsaken. Uh, and according to VentureBeat, uh, this game is supposed to be significantly darker than the Ori games. And Mala has apparently been uh, insisting that the uh, inciting incident of this Uh, story should be a sexual assault. Uh, This is something that apparently they abandoned, but apparently only after, uh, quote, weeks of arguments. Um, This initial report has kind of opened the floodgates to a lot of people uh, starting to talk about the toxicity uh, of what goes on at Moon Studios. Um, We just saw something on on Twitter earlier before we started recording from... uh, Francisca Sangradi, um, she tweeted, I worked at Moon Studios for two years. I was the only woman on the story team. I struggled to find I struggled to find the words to express what a soul-destroying experience it was to work with the heads of the studio. The whole studio is built on the lie that quality justifies everything, verbal abuse, crunch, public, public humiliation, but it just wears you down and burns you out. Burnt out people do not produce quality. Uh, she continues to say, Anything good that you had made before they had killed your creative spark was used to lure new unwitting developers in to fill the places of the friends you watched leave one by one. Please don't be fooled. Don't perpetuate the problem by working for places like Moon. We have to stop the defeatist mentality that this is just the industry. Uh, There are better places out there. You deserve better. Now, as I mentioned at the top of this, uh, we have talked quite a bit about, you know, toxicity in the workplace as far as video game studios goes. And I'm not really sure w- what the the culture in, in the gaming industry is that this is such a prevalent problem. Uh, we're talking about a lot of different studios that have um, come under fire. Uh, most notably, probably uh, Activision Blizzard has been in the news a lot for these kinds of problems. Um it's just absolutely unacceptable, obviously, and it kind of it kind of sours the experience a little bit. Uh, something we're going to talk about next week is you know separating the art from the artist, and yes, video games are art. Um, and playing the Ori games, which are very sort of wholesome, cool little platformers, absolutely beautiful uh, graphically speaking. And, and then to keep in mind that the people who created this, you know, had to go through this this toxic work environment. It does kind of sour the experience. Um, I'm just, I'm just sad that this continues to be such a problem, Chris. Yeah, it's just really, it, it's just really defeats you. Like just reading about these things, uh, it, it's just heartbreaking, um, and it, it just, it really makes you wonder what we can do to avoid this unchecked authority of these predominantly male-led workplaces, and and how we can actually have change, like. 
do we need to provide an influx of human resources more than just like one representative for an entire company or, or what do we need to do to make this better? Because it, it's just heartbreaking and, and I just want it to be better. Um, and I just want, I, I'm, I'm proud of people like Francisca Sonkarati, like speaking up and sharing their experience because this is how change comes about is when people speak truth to power. I just, I just want it to be more prevalent and to just eradicate this unchecked authority by just these horrendous individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that, Chris. Um, and again, I, I think we're, we're coming up on, on discussing at some point soon, you know, um, you know, how, how, how we interact with art that was created by less than savory individuals. It's just, video games are so incredibly complex in that there are so many different hands in the creation of them. And even if, you know, the studio heads are total, you know, jerks as the indication seems to be here, you know, does that make the art itself, you know, invalid in some way, considering, you know, the dozens and dozens of people who were involved in creating it It is a complicated question that we're going to be tackling here soon. Um, And this is just another indicator of how, how difficult that question can be. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's it for Nerd News. When we come back, it's time for our big talk. And we are going to talk about some of our all-time favorite artists. Stick around. Welcome back, ladies and gentle nerds. It's time to talk about art in this week's Now, Chris, this is uh, a topic uh, near and dear to my heart uh, for a number of reasons. As you know, I, I dabbled in uh, writing comic books once upon a time. And one of my favorite things about doing that was, you know, the collaboration and the interaction with the art team. Uh, there is something in, in incredibly um, a collaborative about the creation of a comic book. And when done well, it is one of the most fun, creative uh, relationships and experiences uh, I think that you'll ever have. Um, but for some reason, we continue to kind of struggle, particularly in recent years again, with just giving artists their due. Um, the official DC Comics Twitter account, for example, uh, tweeted out recently that actor Paul Dano was going to write a Riddler year one comic book and completely neglected to include um, the name of the artist, which by the way is Stevan Subic apparently. And this is going to be his um, DC comics debut. Um, several other outlets, including IGN actually did include his name, but for some reason, DC comics official Twitter account didn't think the artist was worth mentioning. Um, it's a very, very odd situation, right, Chris? Yeah, for sure. So we're going to actually uh, do what we do best, which means we operate in threes. Each of us has selected uh, three artists that we find uh, significant, uh, whose art speaks to us, um, who were part of important storylines that you know matter to us. Whatever the criteria is, these are some of our all-time favorite artists. And uh, Chris, you, you hit right away with a strong example. Yeah, I love Chris Bashalo's work, and it's it's a really interesting experience um, that I have with their work. Um, my first, the first time that I read anything was I was reading <clears throat> uh, current Amazing Spider-Man issues, and it was like a, a one-time fill-in job, and it just jarred me. Like <clears throat> I had gotten used to like um like a very realistic artist at the time that was on. Um, and then, you know, seeing Bashalo's artwork was very, very jarring. And then, um, it really developed into like a deep love for his work when I, um, did my X-Men read throughs. Um, so Chris Bashalo on, on the X-Men is just some of the best pairings that you're ever going to have. I'm thinking particularly, um, Generation X, which is a previous nerd commendation and I wax poetic about it before, but um particularly his work with the character um of Mplate and Penance there's particularly a panel um 
where Penance is like holding a butterfly or something, and it's just like something out of, or there's a, yeah, there's a butterfly in front of Penance's face, and it's like a dreamscape, like it's 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 just absolutely majestic and it's beautiful, and um, some people would classify it as like cartoon like, um, but I see it as very like emotional and expressive and particularly the character of on plate um is absolutely just terrifying so if you're a horror fan just look at the character design of m plate and it's just absolutely something out of a nightmare um so it's very expressive and emotion filled um i'm also a huge fan of the 2014 I believe it is era of uncanny X-Men where we get the revolutionary Scott Summers, um, where he's teamed up with Magneto and Emma Frost and, uh, magic. And they are kind of like this renegade, um, mutant rights activists. And Scott is kind of in his Magneto era. And, you know, with pairing with Bendis, um, uh, Bashalo just like is, is just really knocks it out of the park. I love everything about Bashalo's art, and it's been a real journey, kind of discovering um, their work through X Men comics. Really great work in <clears throat> with Generation Next and the Age of Apocalypse era. So fun and at times gross with some of the character work and character designs. It's just really cool to kind of really kind of dig deep into those character studies that that he does. And um, it's it's just really, really cool to kind of see this journey that I have myself as a latecomer to comics. Uh, and, and one of the first people that I think of with my journey in comics is Chris Bashalo. So it's, it's funny that, that you actually uh, bring up Bashalo because, you know, I, obviously I've seen their work on, on Spider-Man. Um, but what's funny is that, you know, I'm this huge 90s DC kid. And especially, you know, uh, I've had mad love for uh, the Vertigo imprint in particular. And if you ever go back to the 90s, my friend, you're going to see a very, very different Bashalo. Um, yeah, their art back then was, I want to say, almost minimalist, you know, very clear, thick lines. Uh, very, very cool. Um I remember their work on on the Death miniseries at Vertigo was like a spin-off from Sandman. Um was written by Neil Gaiman, uh called mm-hmm, The High Cost of Living, I believe. Death the High Cost of Living. And uh the art on that was just was just absolutely stunning. Uh Bashalo also did work on Shade the Changing Man at 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 DC and and their art on that was also really really cool. But it's interesting how artists develop and change because these days, I think Bashalo's art is very, um, I guess, idiosyncratic. It's kind of its own thing. Um, but when you look at the '90s, um, much more, much more, you know, minimalist, but still very, very, very cool. So it's interesting how artists change over time. But if you're if you're a Bashalo fan, I really, really recommend checking out maybe some Shade to Changing Man. I think the art on that was really cool. Oh my god, he's teaming up with Hickman for Moon Knight Black, White, and Blood. I didn't know that. Well, now you can't go wrong, right? <laughs> All right, Dave, who is first up on your list? Well, when you're talking about being a DC Comics fan in the in the 80s and 90s, um, and, and obviously you know somewhat before then, but in the 80s and 90s in particular, I think you you have to discuss <clears throat> you have to discuss George Perez. Um you know, obviously Perez is not just an artist, but also a writer. So he's a he's a double whammy. <clears throat> but Perez, you know, had his hands in some of the the biggest and most important things happening at DC for quite a while. <clears throat> Famously, you know, the penciler on on Crisis and Infinite Earths, a twelve issue maxi series that sort of rebooted the DC universe in a lot of ways. And then from there went on to be one of the most significant voices of uh, recreating Wonder Woman for a new age. And I would say Perez's Wonder Woman is still uh, holds up totally and is, is one of the best things that has been done with the character outside of perhaps maybe uh, Greg Rucka and, and Gail Simone. So, um, you know, Perez's art is is fascinating in a number of ways. It's very detailed. Um but it doesn't, you know, like, 
become like over rendered or something. Uh, Perez is actually incredibly famous for being able to just put a metric crap ton of characters on a page for those big epic crossovers and stuff. Um, but at the same time, when you're looking at like um, at Perez's Wonder Woman or uh, New Teen Titans, which he did with uh, with Marv Wolfman, you're talking about a significant series that had a major impact on the industry. Um, you know, Perez also has a real knack for like really expressive faces to the capturing emotion of the characters. Um, and, and for that, I absolutely, absolutely love his artwork. And I really did want to mention Perez, even though he's probably one of the most well-known and most beloved artists um, that you can talk about um, because of, uh, you know, my generation's affinity in particular for his work at DC and, and Marvel. I know he did, uh, you know, some significant Marvel work as well. I'm just not as familiar with. Um, and obviously right now, I mean, he's, he's um, you know, struggling with, with stage three inoperable uh, pancreatic cancer and... Um, you know, is, is in hospice cares at this point. And yeah, I think a lot of the, a lot of the comic book, uh, fandom is already sort of mourning the fact that he is, he's withering away, um, such an amazing artist. And so, so significant to the industry. I just, I had to talk about the man, Chris. Yeah. So I'm as, uh, not as experienced, obviously, with being a newcomer to DC, and most of his principal work at Marvel, I believe, came with the Avengers title, and the only Avengers that I've really read is Hickman's, so not very familiar with his work, but I do remember his work on Infinity Gauntlet. Um, you know, when Infinity War was ramping up, I immediately jumped and, and read that, and it's just, it's mind-blowing, the attention to detail. Um from character facial expressions to like something being on a counter in the background and it and it's all applicable it's not it's not redundant and it's important and it's effective and you know you you say something i'm looking at a spread over here with infinite crisis there's probably 15 to 20 characters on screen with this pink lightning shocking through them it's just incredible the the level of attention to detail and you know with that dc universe infinite um subscription i've got for a year now i've I've got a lot of i got a lot of work ahead of me and george perez is one of the the first names that comes to mind with with what i want to accomplish there yeah, man, and I cannot speak highly enough of obviously his work with Marv Wolfman on New Teen Titans, but to me, um, his work on Wonder Woman is just is just so incredible and one of my all time favorite things he's done. So I, I will I'll highly recommend checking out you know his Wonder Woman from the eighties. It's just so good. All right, Chris, that brings us to your second artist that you want to talk about today. Probably my favorite. Um, modern artist <clears throat> and does not do a lot of interior work primarily almost mostly covers but I love Jen Bartel's work um, it is very cool and neon and it's very effervescent of life and brightness and just fun um, I actually have like a Spider-Man print that she did hanging up in my classroom it's just very cool. The use of these bright neon colors um, is just so great. Um, her uh, variant covers for Marvel for Mar uh, for Women's History Month last uh, last year were absolutely spellbinding. There's a Felicia Hardy one. I think I have all of them. There's a Silk one. Um, uh, there's a there's a whole bunch of them. They're just fantastic. And particularly one of my favorite character designs that she's done is Storm Through the Ages. I think she did like a variant cover or some even some interior work for Marvel Comics 1000. It's just like all the different outfits and hairstyles that Storm has had through the uh, through the years, including her natural curl pattern is just really fascinating to see. Um, her her She-Hulk stuff is fantastic. Just it it just it, it it like it almost like zaps you with electricity just looking at her artwork. Oh, I will say, Future State Wonder Woman uh, was one of the few Future State books that I read, and she did the interior stuff on that book, and it was just gorgeous, just absolutely mind blowingly gorgeous. So, Jen Bartel is one of my all time favorites, um, and probably if we're going modern completely, probably my favorite modern artist. 
Yeah, holy smokes. <clears throat> I actually did not know anything about, about Jen Bartel. And looking at like these um, Women's History Month variants, holy smokes, that Jessica Drew one is incredible. Yeah. Um, and the Shuri one is ridiculous, man. Yeah, that's the other one oh, I have, the Shuri one. Yeah. Oh, holy smokes. She also did a variant cover of uh, Daredevil Woman Without Fear with yep. Electra as Daredevil. That... Uh, can I hang that on my wall? <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes, yeah. man. And see, this is the interesting thing, you know, about my relationship with, with comic book art. I, I absolutely love interior art. I love cover art. But the one thing that I always have struggled with is getting into variant covers. Yeah. I'm primarily there for the, you know, for the story. Right. Um, and so I've never been one to buy like the same comic book with like four different covers or something. And I feel like oftentimes that attitude has, you know, caused me to miss out on on some absolutely fantastic cover artwork you know because it's like a a one to 50 variant cover and i'm not willing to shell out 40 bucks for the same comic just with a different cover um but you know i think i'm gonna have to start like making a habit of just sitting down and like just googling variant covers or something because there are some absolute bangers here ah she's incredibly talented ah you know being primarily like a, a pinup uh and and um um you know, artist of like variant covers. And I think uh, looking looking up the name, there was like some design work she did for like uh, Adidas or something. Um, I guess the the one sad thing is that we'll never see this kind of work apparently in, in the interior pages of a comic. And I think having sort of that neon soak thing that, that she does would be super, super cool uh, in an interior book. Now I will say she does. She has done some in interior work. She did that Immortal Wonder Woman Future State, and she also has a book. I want to say with Boom Studios. That doesn't everybody have a book with Boom Studios? Uh, these really, days? truly. Um, <laughs> I want to say she's done something with Boom or Willow. Willow. She's done a book. Um, at least, at least she did the covers for Willow with. Um, and that's a that's a Buffy thing, right? And that's yes yes that's, it is that's your that's your right up your alley also you got to check the the women's history month cover she did for your girl silk because that is spellbinding as well she did some kind of um some kind of piece of work about uh america chavez apparently recently that looks really really good yeah now you're, you're right man this is one talented artist I'm, I'm i've been missing out all right dave uh, next up on your artwork, this is one of your first nerd commendations, if memory serves. Yes, and I and I will sing the praises of this artist until the day I die. And even if this artist would retire right now and never do anything else, J.H. Williams III will forever be in the upper escalons of, of comic book artists for me for the absolutely spellbinding work done uh, with, with Batwoman. Um, First during uh, the run on Detective Comics that focused on Batwoman and then in her solo series, you know, the art that J.H. Williams III provided was unlike anything I had seen up until that point when it comes to interior artwork. The the incredibly oddly shaped panels, the the extreme close-ups, uh, you know, the choices made um, as far as like angles lighting you know the shading of the book uh, everything that happened was absolutely spellbinding and gorgeous i cannot speak highly enough of jh williams iii's art on batwoman and as a um you know as an ally i have to say that i fully also um appreciate that although batwoman was a fantastic gig when dc editorial started bucking uh, against his plans um, when he kind of took over writing the book to have uh, Batwoman and Maggie Sawyer actually marry, um, that he was willing to leave the book. He just walked away. He said, listen, if, you, if we're going to play these games, I'm not going to put up with that. And he walked away. So not only is, a fanta- is he a fantastic <clears throat> artist, but also a person of great principle. And, and I, I can totally appreciate that. But dude, if you have never read any of, of the Batwoman run drawn by, by Williams you are missing out on some of the 
greatest interior artwork that I have ever experienced in my life. And I have read a crap ton of comics. It is absolutely incredible. It is it is gorgeous. It is spellbinding. It is moody. It does incredibly cool things with page layouts that I've never seen done before. It, it's innovative as all get out. And it is so regrettable that we don't get to see more books that lean that heavily into um, a character's vibe and mood to kind of dominate how the page is even laid out. It is a treat from start to finish, Chris. Yeah, I'm seeing it right now. Uh, there's a particular panel. The use of the color red is just immaculate here. It's just it's just fascinating. Um, but I'm looking at a panel right here where there's like lightning bolts in red kind of mixed with the red cape, the red boots, the red hair, and like a thug is being kicked or hit in some form or fashion, in each of these different lightning bolts, there's another one that it's like the shape of the the outline of a bat. This is just crazy, and I'm I'm all in. Yeah, and and let me tell you, the the art uh, is fantastic. But uh, I'll also mention that the the writing is no slouch either. It's it's an absolutely fantastic, great, great, moody book. Um, and and losing, um. And, and losing J.H. Williams III on, on Batwoman is probably one of the biggest mistakes that, that DC has ever let pass. Um, I don't think the character ever quite recovered from that. There have been some you know subsequent series and stuff, but uh, I don't think Batwoman was ever better than in, in that time period right there. There's just something I've always been a fan of uh, pairings, the color black with something like black and red, black and blue. The Nightwing costume is fantastic. Black and green, the Green Lantern outfit's amazing. There's just something pure and simplistic about pairing the color black with something uh, with a bright color like that that I absolutely love. So this is right up my alley. Yeah, I, it's it's just yeah. I just pulled up some of the interior art. I I own all these in in you know single issues, bagged and boarded nicely in one of my boxes downstairs. I really am going to have to you know pull those out again and read them again because it's just a visual feast. All right, Chris, that brings us to your third and final pick. All right, well, I'm going uh, a dynamic duo this time around, um, and I'll talk about it more in my nerd commendation. But the the work between pencils and and color between Pepe Larraz and Marte Gracia, particularly on the X books like X of Swords, um, House of X, and now the current run of X-Men that, that started in t- uh, 2021 is just fascinating. It's, it's so grandiose and it's big and it is like superhero comics at its best. Like the feats that they are able to pull off. Like if you're a big fan of super heroics, this art does as much, if not more so, and all due respect to Jerry Duggan and the writing teams of the storytelling without words, with just like how grandiose the the feats are artistically when it comes to the, the superhero feats here. So it's just... I love it. And their dynamic duo, the the colors and the pencils, they're inseparable, in my opinion. Uh, Laraz also does some amazing cover art um, for the previous Nerd Commendation, uh, the Black Cat series, which if you have not read that yet, oh my God, it's so, 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 so good. Uh, but yeah, Pepe Laraz and Marti Gracia, I placed them together because they're a dynamic duo and inseparable to give one more love than the other, in my opinion. Yeah, so uh, I I went ahead and and immediately did some googling while you were talking and just looking at some of this artwork and uh, it's it's very very cool. Um, you know me, I'm, I've been struggling of getting into modern X comics, but this looks like something I could really get into. It it definitely has that that super heroic vibe to it. Um, I like it a lot, man. This is very very cool stuff. Um, I do have to ask, is Jean Grey ever going to stop wearing that green drape that she calls a dress because it's just like the worst look ever? You know, um, I'm going to be very careful here because the rabid fandom, uh, I'm, uh, that sounds bad. I, I may have ruined this already. The Jean Grey fandom online is very devout. Uh, and one of the touchiest subjects is that dress. Um, I'm not as worried about the dress, as I said before, as I am the cleaning gloves. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's a highly contested topic. 
Um, a lot of Gene fans are jealous of Storm fans because of the Hellfire Gala. Um, Storm just kept wearing that amazing outfit that she got for the Hellfire Gala, and Gene automatically turned hers back into the designer or sent it to the dry cleaners, and it hasn't shown up again. So she's back with the green dress. Um, now, Hellfire Year 2 looks have been teased and released now, so here's hoping that she keeps this one. You know, it's funny. I keep, you know, opening my mouth on on comic social media as well. And somebody will in, invariably come in and say, "Ooh, you're opening a Pandora's box. You may not want to say that. And I'm like, you know, I mean, people are free to disagree. Yeah. Um, don't have to. We don't have to get toxic about it. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to speak my mind. So Jean Grey fans, I love you. And I love the character. Not a big fan of the dress. If you like it, good for you. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I shifted my allegiances to Emma Frost, I started getting blocked by Jean Grey fans. So, but that's, oh. something, but that's something I'll wear as a badge of honor because Emma Frost is spectacular. So, uh, Dave, one this this one I have actual experience with. Uh, the New Frontier uh, is one of the most beautiful uh, animation films that I've ever watched. So, hit me with it. Yeah, my friend, uh, God, God rest his soul, Darwin Cook, um, maybe the closest, and and this is an oversimplification, but maybe the closest to a comic book artist that feels like uh, an evolution of the DC animated universe in the best possible way. Um, Cook's art was just, um, you know, clean lines, expressive faces. Uh, especially his super heroic stuff, absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's something minimalist to his art and something a little cartoony, but at the same time, um, super expressive and just kind of it, it just kind of speaks to you. And as you've mentioned, you know, Cook's probably most famous work is The New Frontier. You know, that move sort of we're talking about like nineteen um, fifties style super heroics, kind of you know reinvented a little bit for the modern age. Um, but you know, Cook was more than that. Um, he, uh, had his hands actually in the DC animated universe. I, I worked as a storyboard artist for a while, um, on both Batman, the animated series and Superman, the animated series series. He, um, had his hands in, you know, I, I, I you know, recommended to you since you said you were interested in Catwoman. Um, I recommended to you, uh, Ed Brubaker's run, which kind of reinvented the character, um, well, well, guess what? The art on that reinvention was done by Darwin Cook, and it is uh, absolutely gorgeous exactly for that. A uh, very cool little Batman graphic novel he did called Batman Ego, which is basically about um, Bruce Wayne and Batman having sort of a conversation with each other, uh, which is, is absolutely, like from a psychological standpoint, absolutely fascinating, and from an art standpoint, absolutely gorgeous. Um, Cook had absolutely fantastic uh, sensibilities when it comes to art and and the fact that he has you know has passed away um, we lost Darwin Cook in, in 2016 um, is absolutely heartbreaking uh, it, the artwork that he created uh, was something so different at, from what was going on in mainstream comics at the time and at the same time um, so quintessential to the characters and how he portrayed them. It's it's very rare that somebody can innovate by harkening back to some of the most classic looks and designs and stories. Um, but that's exactly what Cook did, particularly in something like The New Frontier, which was a step forward while still being nostalgic for the past. I mean, how often does that happen in the industry? Most of the time when there's any nostalgia involved, there is no forward momentum. But but man, Cook's art and, and Cook's story sensibilities were second to none. And and losing him was a great, great, great loss uh, for, for comic book fans everywhere, I think, Chris. Yeah, for sure. And like you, you said it exactly. How in the world do you go back to something like the golden age of comics? And it feels like you're transported there, but you're also in the future. It's just crazy how he was able to thread the needle like that. And it's just absolutely a feast for the eyes. I absolutely love it. Yeah, and if you like, if you look up, you know, and I, I'll challenge you to use your friend Google and just look up <laughs> Darwin Cook Catwoman and see some of the imagery. Yeah, I'm seeing there. it right there. Yeah, 
it's 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 you you kind of can see what they were going with 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 Zoe Kravitz's you know yes, whole approach to that absolutely. character. It's it's very Darwin Cookish. Um, I did I, I don't know if Cookish Cookish Cook like Darwin yeah. Cook like no I don't know man. Um, what whatever the t- proper terminology here is, you can kind of see what they were going for, and this is very much captures a Darwin Cook feel. Um, so I just I love 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 Darwin Cook's art, and I just the saddest thing about it is that there will never be more of it. Alrighty, folks. Well, there you have it. Uh, here are some of Chris's and uh, my favorite artists. Uh, who are some of your favorite artists and why? Find us on social media and let us know. You can find us uh, on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. Next up, stick around for some nerd commendations. And we're back. Time for everybody's favorite segment. It's, of course, called... Now, Chris, correct me if you've heard this one before. We're having an episode of The Nerd Byword, and you recommend something X-Men related. Has this ever occurred before? And and <laughs> let me let me <laughs> stop me if you've heard this before. I nerd commend something X Men, and Dave says it's hard for him to break into. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> okay, so I I kind of we kind of kind of fell into this nerd commendation a couple of weeks ago um, when you we were talking about the superheroics. I think it was the Wolverine and the X Men discussion that we were having. Um, so if you're a fan of the super heroic aspect of the X-Men, um, then this comic is for you. I'm talking about the current uh, run of X-Men by Jerry Duggan, Pepe Larraz, and Marte Gracia. Yeah, I'm giving love to my artists. Here's looking at you, DC. Um, but I, I absolutely love this era. And as much as I love the Krakoan like reset and... um. It's it's like this Nicki Minaj sound that was like I took some time off for myself, but now I'm back. So like the X Men and mutant kind kind of took off to kind of heal for themselves and to create some like this form of subsistence that they needed because you know they were tri- tired of being persecuted and murdered because they were born differently. Um, And so they created their own nation, their own sovereign nation, and they kind of had this entire paradigm shift. And now that we are at the time that this this run started three years into that, what happens now? Like what happens after, you know, as Professor Xavier says in the first issue of this rebooted era, uh, the reset era of House of X, when you slept while you slept, the world changed. So what does that look like now as they kind of interact with the greater Marvel universe and and superhero superheroics at at large? And so what I also love about this team is is it's got something for everybody. Like if you're a classic X-Men fan, um, not the incel neckbeards, we don't have any time for you. But if you're a classic X-Men fan, it's got um, a, a really diverse roster. Uh, it's got Cyclops, it's got Jean Grey, it's got Rogue. So if you're a 90s kid and you came to the X-Men through the X-Men uh, animated series, then it's right there for you. But it also has, Polaris is not a new character. She's been around since the 60s. But it's really kind of new life that's been breathed into this character. She's the winner of the first ever X-Men vote. And what Jerry Duggan has done with the voice of this character He's turned her into a latte sipping, um, like it girl. Like it's fascinating what he's done with this character. Who it's hard to believe that the the character uh, that's the daughter of Magneto has kind of been underserved through all these years. Uh, yes, actual daughter of Magneto. Sorry, Wanda. Um, but also a character that's been near and dear to my heart ever since Giant Size X Men Sunfire, who 
was always interesting to me because in Giant Size X-Men in 75, within that first issue, he's like, you guys are screwed up. I don't like you. I'm leaving. And he quits the team within that first issue of like him being inducted into the X-Men. So like he's arrogant. He's pompous. He's like really big in Japan. Like he has like this huge social standing. Um Sink, who is the runaway superstar of this series. If you're a Generation X fan, then you have to pick this up. Have to. Everett Thomas, Sink, is really leveled up into like an Omega level mutant. And then another amazing character that has been really revitalized um, in the last decade or so is Laura Kinney Wolverine. Um, you know, and that's in large part thanks to the work of something like All New Wolverine by Tom Taylor. Um, it's just a really great roster. Um, and it's, it's super heroics. And I, I liken it to, they are kind of like an ambassador ship. Like they have this tree house in central park and they're kind of like Krakoan ambassadors to the United States or the world. So it's really a lot of fun, big, bad, super heroics. Like I said, the art, does most of the storytelling and Jerry is just there to guide it. And that's no disrespect to Jerry. That's just all the love for the art team of Laraz and Gracia. So I absolutely love this book. It's a lot of fun. There are new villains that are introduced and the character design on some of these new characters are absolutely crazy. There's um, Cordyceps Jones is this alien. He's literally like a living fungus. Like he's just a big old mushroom. And that's the character design. It's horrifying, it's terrifying, and it's awesome. So uh, the current X-Men series uh, by Jerry Duggan, Pepe Larraz, and Marte Gracia is a resounding nerd commendation from me. And it's an easy jumping on point, I promise. <sighs> Chris. <laughs> How many issues in is this thing? I believe eight or nine. So I should be able to find the first few issues on, yeah. on Marvel Unlimited. Yes. All right, you win. <laughs> I will go ahead and I will give it a look. And I will report back next week. <laughs> if, if, I th- if I think I found an X-book from the modern era that I can get into. All right. <laughs> All right. Now, Dave, you are uh, doing my homework for me, I guess. Or at least giving me another reminder that I have to get to work. Well, okay, so um, being on DC Universe Unlimited, uh, or Infinite, it is Infinite, um, I'm just going to tell you that I- I'm reading so many comic books right now, it's making my head spin. I don't even know what to nerd comment half the time. Um, but for this week, I settled on an excellent trilogy of six-issue miniseries that, uh, that unite the Bat of Gotham and the Turtles of New York. Um, we're looking at the Batman TMNT trilogy. Uh, all three minis were written by uh, James Tanya the Fourth and feature art by Freddie Williams the um, Second. I have to say that Tanya has a fantastic uh, grasp of who Batman is, having been uh, a Batman writer, writer in detective comics, writer in Batman. He's you know been around the block when it comes to the Bat. Um, but also does a really, really good job with the IDW era of the Turtles, I think. Um, and so here, here's what we got. Our first six-issue miniseries features um, the Turtles, Shredder, and a sizable uh, chunk of the uh, Foot Clan having been uh, transported uh, during a battle with our friend Krang to uh, Gotham City. Um, and now being stuck in a universe where there is no ooze, uh, the turtles have to face the very real possibility that their mutation is going to basically degrade and they are going to revert to regular turtles if they don't manage to return back to their own universe. And they naturally end up uh, encountering Batman. There's some cool fighting as they try to figure out who the other is. And then, of course, uh, in classic superhero fashion, they team up. Um, the the sequel miniseries then goes ahead and uh, reverses that a little bit, leans into some insecurities that Donatello has about his fighting skill compared to his brothers, um, kind of you know not acknowledging to himself that his his brain is really the best contribution that he can give. He decides he's going to communicate with Batman and get some advice on his training regimen since he's such a good fighter. 
uh, opens the door and accidentally lets Bane uh, out uh, of the bag and into New York City. Um, and so uh, Batman, and in this case also Damian Wayne Robbins, soon follow to try to help the Turtles and take Bane back to his own universe. You get a lot of fun interactions there with Damian Wayne and Raphael, two people with a massive chip on their shoulder, trying to beat the snot out of each other for fun. Um, it, it was very, very entertaining. Um, and then the the third miniseries hit, and I really didn't know what to what to expect. You know, I mean, we had um, the turtles traveling to Batman's world, Batman traveling to the turtles' world. What in the world could be next? And let me tell you, this was maybe by far the most bonkers of the three minis. Um, it's probably the least accessible. Uh, you have to be a fairly decent comic book fan to get what incarnation is happening here. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it, it's also a lot of fun. So um, our friend Krang basically gets a hold of the uh, armor of the Anti-Monitor from the DC Universe and decides that he's going to reshape reality um, and basically create his own multiverse. And in order to defeat the people that you know would be most effective in trying to beat him, the Turtles and... Batman, he decides to take them basically and merge their worlds together. And suddenly you have a world now where Bruce Wayne's parents were murdered. And after his parents were killed, he was taken in uh, by Splinter and the Turtles as basically uh, the fifth brother and was raced alongside <laughs> the Turtles and trained by Splinter. And so you have this really cool mix in their designs, you know, um, where each of the turtles basically has like outfits on that kind of uh, recall either Robin or Nightwing or any of these other characters that Batman has worked with. Um, you also have this absolutely bonkers thing where, you know, you have alternate versions of Batman and the turtles from across the multiverse. Uh, you get a really, really cool homage where the original black and white Ninja Turtles yeah. Raphael is actually traveling through the multiverse to warn uh, the IDW Turtles that uh, the world that they're living in is not right and these worlds need to be separated and they have to restore their memories. And it just gets more and more bonkers from there. Uh, you basically have the Joker operating sort of as a Shredder-like character. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, it's, uh, he's, I think he's referred to as the Laughing Man or something and he has a an army of his own ninjas and it's just it's absolutely bonkers in the best possible way uh, and leads to a really i think satisfying conclusion to this trilogy but i think you know I, i've always been sort of weary of, of 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 like gimmicky crossovers you know i just if there's not a good story there something to explore then what's the point but what what you know the team here did of, of, of tinyan and williams is they actually did a really really cool job exploring the character of batman the character of robin the characters of the ninja turtles you know we, we get you know donatello's insecurities you know we get we get Raphael, uh, you know having to deal with you know maybe reverting back to a regular turtle his attitude problem towards robin and robin's attitude problem towards him and how do they resolve that so they can work together and overcome that there's so many cool character moments in this um and then you know if you're a big old comic book nerd like i am there's also all these little you know things especially in the last miniseries where like oh isn't that isn't that the anti-monitor's armor that that krang is running around in? well that's a new look you know there's just so many cool things um so i would say if you haven't read this, it, it's time to read it. Uh, if you're a Batman fan, if you're a TMNT fan, especially the IDW TMNT, which is just, I think we've talked about that ad nauseum, how good that is. Um, I think these three minis do such a good job bringing those two worlds together and just letting the characters bounce off of each other. This is not just one of those, you know, look at the cool fight scenes we can get out of this and much more look at the interesting character moments. I think my favorite moment out of all three minis occurs in the first one where uh, Raphael basically accuses Batman of just being a rich guy who, you know, is a thrill seeker who puts on the suit because he likes, you know, he likes to get in fights and he's just in it for the thrill. And Batman literally takes him to, to crime alley and shows him where his parents were gunned down and, and explains to Raphael why he does what he does in order to gain his trust. It's one of the coolest scenes in the whole, in the whole series. So 
Um, yeah, Chris, if you've not read this yet as a TMNT fan, I think you're going to adore this. Yeah, man. Okay, so cats out of the bag. My next article for Comics Bookcase is all about this, at least the first crossover. My editor said that I can do just the first crossover, read all three, whatever. I'm a completionist, so I'm going to read all three and watch the movie. Uh, Batman versus the Ninja Turtles, which I'm always hesitant when we have heroes versus each other. It's one of the tropiest tropes in all of tropes. But um, yeah, I, I've always put this one off for the exact kind of reservations that you said. I'm like, is this is this just pandering to me? Is this is, is you know, is it just going to disappoint me? Um, but one feather in the cap towards me reading it before you know, writing this article was the um, TMNT and Mighty Morphing Power Rangers um, crossover that I read uh, uh, last year, maybe the year before. It was just absolutely fantastic and really makes me want to dive into Power Ranger comics as how well they were written by Ryan Perrott. Um, It's just I have 8,000 things that I'm reading or watching or playing right now. But yeah, I, I can't wait to write this article. I can't wait to consume all of this material. Yeah, I think you're really going to enjoy it, Chris. All right, folks, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Uh, if you like what you heard, please get on your favorite podcasting platform. You know, leave us leave us a rating uh, and a review. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us wherever podcasts can be found: uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Uh, if there are podcasts there, we are there, including our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And please be sure to hit us up on social media with your favorite artists. Uh, Did we get it right? Who did we miss? Show love for your favorite comic book artists, past, present, what have you. Uh, You can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord or individually that NerdDave, that NerdChris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.